beautifully described as the strum strump, otherwise the banjo. It arrived in Australia already loaded with the, well, pejorative stereotypes. Even today it's seen as a bit of a hillbilly instrument synonymous with the conservative white country music culture. But like so many other things in history, the banjo was not invented by white people but appropriated by them. In fact, it was designed by enslaved people of African descent who had arrived in the Americas and were carving out a new culture for themselves. And it wasn't just a means of making marvellous music. It could be a symbol of rebellion and, as you will discover, a deeply significant spiritual object. Christina R. Gaddy has gone to great lengths to unearth the true history of the banjo, and her result is a new book, Well of Souls, uncovering the banjo's hidden history. Christina, welcome to our little wireless program. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. I'd like you to tell me how you did a segue from playing classical violin to becoming attached to the banjo. Um. The easiest answer to that is that my mom is from Sweden, and so I started playing Swedish folk music with her. I enjoyed playing in school orchestras, uh, but I found I wanted to kind of play in more social situations with people, and from there started playing kind of old American old-time traditional music, some bluegrass, and started learning about the history of the banjo and was just completely fascinated with how something that we perceive, as you mentioned, as being so uh, white and so American actually had, you know, this black history and lots of influence um, from Africa. Now, your partner, Pete Ross, also played a part. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so he is a banjo maker, and he was really the first person uh, to delve into some of the very deepest, earliest history with me, because I knew these kind of broad strokes, but I wasn't, you know, I think like many people, familiar with this earliest history. And he really encouraged, you know, this kind of banjo obsession that he has to trickle over um, in, into my life and really start thinking about the banjo in different and interesting ways. One of the extraordinary things in your story is the fact that there are less than 15 known images of the banjo that exist before 1820. I find that astonishing. Take us back to the first known record from 1687 and introduce us to Hans Sloan. Yes, so the first known image of the banjo as we have it right now is 1687 with Hans Sloan. And Hans Sloan was a British doctor and he was sent to Jamaica with 
the new governor of Jamaica who was going to take over in 1687. And Hans Sloan was a little bit unusual for his time because he really wanted to travel and wanted to learn about plant life there, learn about remedies that both uh, Native Americans who would have been on Jamaica and enslaved Africans were using to basically build his own medical knowledge through those uh, various plant remedies. But he also had this super interesting, what I think of as a collector's instinct or a collector's gene, which I still see with some of my banjo collecting friends today, which was that when Hanslon went, he didn't just want to learn about these things, but he wanted to collect them. So he collected plants and he collected objects. And um, one of two of the things that he collected were two early banjos that were called strumstrums, or he recorded the name as strumstrums. Uh, but they're remarkably similar both to banjo images that appear about 100 years later than that and banjos that are collected in the Caribbean 150 years after that first 1687 account. So the good Dr. Sloan also asked a, a black musician, Mr. Baptiste, to transcribe the music he heard at a festival. Yes, and that is also so exciting just because there were there are very few accounts of uh, African American music from, you know, basically before slavery begins to end in, in various colonies, um, you know, beginning uh, in the 1830s, but he was interested in music and went to this festival and asked Mr. Baptiste, who was a black man, to transcribe uh, the songs that he heard, which took an amazing amount of skill because uh, they are very rhythmically interesting and different from Western music, and yet he's putting it on, you know, Western notation so that anybody who bought Sloan's book when it he finally published it in 1707, could, you know, sit at a harpsichord and play this music. Now, we heard a little bit of uh, the music that made it into the Good Doctor's book at the beginning, and we'll hear a bit more at the end of my chat with Christina. Please describe in detail what a good banjo looks like and how it was made. So gourd banjos look really different from what we think of as modern banjos. I think most people think modern banjos, okay, they have this round body um, that does have kind of a skin or a plastic head on top, uh, but there's a lot of metal to it. Uh, they're really heavy and kind of big instruments. And gourd banjos have a body that is, instead of being made of, you know, a wooden circular, uh, something that almost looks like a drum. It's this rounded gourd. It still has a flat neck like a banjo does today or like a guitar does, but it wouldn't have had frets on it. So the little markers that tell you where to put your fingers. And it just has a much earthier tone because it doesn't have that metal. It still has a skin that sits where a hole has been cut away in the gourd. So it still has that skin soundboard like banjos do today. But, you know, the kind of gourd body and the lack of all of that metal gives it a much, I think of as a richer, uh, kind of lower, earthier tone. And these were made by enslaved people of African descent. Um, and one of the things that I think is important to think about is that materials, you know, are 
at a premium because enslaved people didn't have money to purchase things. So we're thinking of materials that they could have easily gathered themselves. But time was also a premium, uh, the time to make it on their own when they weren't laboring. And so we get kind of instruments that are perhaps somebody would describe as simple, but very well crafted. You make the point that it was different to any known instruments that existed in Africa at the time, but seems to have been a sort of hybrid. Yes, exactly. So the banjo, as we see it with this gourd body, a flat fingerboard, and tuning pegs, just like on a guitar or a violin uh, or a banjo today, these are all unique to the banjo. And we see in Africa, instruments across the continent that have some of these characteristics. So we'll see West African instruments that have gourd bodies, but they don't have flat fingerboards and they don't have tuning pegs. And then in East Africa, we have instruments that have flat fingerboards and tuning pegs, but they have wooden bodies. And so it really seems, you know, to me to be this instrument that is using various traditions to come together. And I always think of it as like creolized language or creolized food, where you're taking some things that you know from your culture, but then it's being influenced by other cultures as well. We have, as I pointed out earlier, the good doctor to thank for strum strums. But uh, where does the word banjo itself come from? The word banjo has been so hard to trace. And one of the things is that there are instruments in Africa that have names that are kind of similar to banjo, but none of them really appear like a banjo appears. So saying that, you know, that came from an African instrument seems kind of hard to substantiate. But one of the most exciting things that kind of spurred all of my research was learning that the word banjo before it was standardized had like lots of different spellings. Um, and one of them that's very similar is banya. So it still has that kind of J sound, but an A at the end. And the banya was also a dance in Suriname, which used to be a Dutch colony. And so, you know, there is a tradition in West African countries that instruments will be named after the dance or ritual that they were a part of. And so it's possible that the word banjo originates with this banya and the banya dance that um, is still a living tradition today in Suriname. It's, it's interesting that this uh, instrument seems to, in a sense, uh, just come alive all over the place, from Suriname that you mentioned to South Carolina to New York. Some sort of uh, combustion takes place. Yeah, and that, that geographic spread is something I think that's always been very interesting to, to people and it's definitely interesting to me. Uh, the two instruments from Suriname look a little bit different than Hans Sloan's image from Jamaica, an instrument from Haiti that has been found, um, and, and an image from South Carolina. So they don't they have a lot of similarities but little bit little differences here and there but i think one of the the tangible geographic uh, spreads that we see is because of enslavement and the movement of people especially from the caribbean to for example louisiana south carolina new york even philadelphia um and so throughout various points during the time period that i write about kind of from 1687 to 
1865, you have, you know, descriptions of people traveling um, from one place to another. You have accounts of, you know, for example, a banjo player in Philadelphia who had come from Haiti. Um, and so you got lots of people moving all the time. And I, you know, I think that's our best guess right now as to how this instrument uh, traveled, you know, from the Caribbean where the earliest examples are to, yeah, as far north as, as New York. People moving by force or by choice. And if we look at the, the latter, the earliest records of banjos we have are from advertisements for people who'd managed to uh, liberate yes. themselves. Yes, and that is an amazing, you know, example kind of 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 the the many types of rebellion that I think I talk about in the book. And you know, one is as daring and dangerous as escaping, and knowing that if you're caught, uh, you could be killed because of that. Um, but of course, we get these records of it saying, you know, for example, uh, Toby ran away from Maryland and he took a banjo with him. Hope Maybe he thought he could, you know, make money playing the banjo. Obviously, I think the banjo is probably an important instrument. Um, so, you know, takes it with him because of that. Uh, but you also get people playing the banjo even when it's not allowed and it, it has been banned in these ways that it becomes not only a tool for people to gather together culturally, but also to express resistance against the oppressive forces of enslavement that so, so were the reality. music and dancing together, a form of rebellion. Absolutely. Um, I think that on the one hand, you have these very specific edicts throughout colonial history that say dancing is banned, gathering is banned, music is banned, drums are banned, if it's enslaved people doing it because it gave people an opportunity to gather and communicate with each other. And perhaps that communication could be used for rebellion, which uh, it was, in fact, you know, we have um, accounts of the beginning of the Haitian Revolution as having music um, and kind of celebration attached to the beginnings of those uprisings. Uh, but even just, you know, thinking about kind of the role that music can play in people's lives because of its physical impacts on the body when we get together and sing, you know, in church or we get together and dance and listen to music, we, our bodies do something amazing and they can kind of get in sync with each other. And so it also, you know, music and dance functioned as a way to build community uh, and, and believe in, you know, higher powers, believe in, in each other. Um, and I think that that is kind of a subtle act of rebellion when living with that type of oppression. I think we've established that the banjo is a subversive instrument, but it's also largely seen as secular, whereas you emphasise the spiritual role it played. And astonishingly, this was embedded in the very design of the instrument. Yeah, this was where it was so helpful to have um, Pete as my sounding board for ideas when I would come across research or come across new images or was, you know, just doing reading surrounding kind of uh, banjo history. And, and I was looking at um, the tradition of voodoo in Haiti and, you know, just learning more about that because w one of the extant instruments, one of the 
still existing instruments today um, is from Haiti. It was collected in 1840. And Pete had examined this instrument when it first uh, turned up in 2003, and one of the things he noticed was that the way in which it was constructed actually made it harder to play, uh, just because of how the neck intersects with the gourd, and it kind of bisects it directly. And it's a little technical, but this makes it harder to play, and he could never figure out the reason for it. He knew that the likely men who made banjos could have made them in a more playable way. In fact, more similar to some of the African instruments that the banjo was different from. And, you know, he was, he had always kind of had that in his mind, but didn't have a good explanation for it. And I started talking about the kind of symbolism that is very central to Vodou, but also to other African diasporic religions, um, in, including symbols that you see in kind of African-American Christianity, um, in Winti and Suriname. And that's basically this intersection of um, a spiritual and earthly plane that's symbolized by a circle being bisected by a line that goes straight up and down. And this, in fact, is that that structure is how, for example, a rattle in Vodou is constructed, that you have a stick that bisects a little calabash that you can then shake, uh, not unlike a maraca. And that is also how the banjo is constructed. And, you know, Pete was like, I think this is the reason. I can't see any other reason. Um, but what was more than that was that once I started thinking that way, I saw how many times the banjo was associated with religious rituals, including uh, death ceremonies, death uh, performances that would have been done at grave sites, uh, various songs and dances that were meant to connect to ancestors and spirits, and that the banjo was really central to those dances and that music. Hence the uh, the notion of the, uh, the well of souls from whence your title comes. Exactly. So I thought that the, you know, the body of the instrument is like vessels or drums in Vodou, which is where spirits can reside. And that, in fact, you know, when the banjo is being played, that it serves as this vessel um, for spirits and souls to come be in and be in concert with the people who are uh, dancing these religious ceremonies. We've done uh, many programs on the looting of African culture. And in that proud tradition, banjos were often taken to Europe as cultural curiosities. Do any of them survive? That is also something I think is amazing, that only four gourd banjos from this early tradition survive. They're all in European museums, even though all of them came from the Americas. And those four were taken as, yeah, cultural curiosities, including the ones that Hans Sloan took. Of course, Hans Sloan took those uh, and they became part of the British Museum, but they are no longer there. They have not been found. They may be somewhere, uh, but they're not at the British Museum. Um, so even though this instrument was ubiquitous and people could use it in an advertisement or in a play or in written language and just say banjo and people knew what that meant, even though it was so common, there are only four 
And I begin in my book talking about that there are three because during the course of not even writing it, during the course of the editing period at the very end, we got an email from a curator in France who said, I found this in a collection. It looks like a banjo. What do you think? And it is it is most definitely a banjo and it's amazing. So there might be more out there in collections and mm-hmm. folks just don't know, you know, what to look for. Um, but yeah, there's only four. Of course, every everyone knows the creator of some of the the most famous violins, but uh, the sad thing is that we will never know who made or played the banjos you're describing. That's correct. Um, Even though we have those four and we have very good records for three of them about the, the white men who collected them, none of them wrote down who they obtained these instruments from and therefore, you know, who would have made them or who the player was. Any discussion about returning the banjos from whence they came? Um, Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I think they, you know, these museums have, um, as they always do, they have their arguments for for keeping them. Um, None of them are in playable condition. They could not be... They just couldn't be made playable because they're too fragile. Again, if we only have four, we don't want to somehow harm any of them. Um, But the other question could be, you know, how could we make replicas of them and perhaps share those um, with these communities so that we can, you know, hear what it sounds like and and experience them within the cultures that they are. Um, And it is something I would love to talk more with those museums about, about how how that kind of ethical return or shared stewardship could work with these instruments. The voice of uh, Christina Gaddy telling us the history of the banjo, which is recorded in her book, Well of Souls. Now, it's very clear from the early records that the banjo was looked down upon by whites who considered it crude and uncouth. So how did it come to pass from black hands to white hands? We see some examples of kind of interest of white folks in banjos um, early, you know, or kind of late in in the eighteen in the seventeen hundreds, early in the eighteen hundreds. But it's really with the explosion of blackface minstrelsy in the eighteen forties that the banjo starts being played by more and more white hands. And so we have these white men who are affecting blackness by painting their faces black, but also speaking in dialects or and wearing clothing that they perceive as black, and then singing songs and playing music as entertainment for white audiences. There's an, an Australian story here which you may not be aware of, and that is after, after slavery... Uh, was banned in the the United States. Those black and white minstrel shows, the blackface shows, were challenged by freed slaves who actually appeared on stage without the need for blackened faces. And they were run out of city after city and some actually came to Australia and played the minefields up and down the uh, up and down our coast. So I guess that's when the banjo arrived in Australia. 
Yes. And there were, I mean, there were also white black faced minstrel troops who came to Australia too. Um, cause it really was a global phenomenon. You had them traveling to, to Australia, to Japan, to England, uh, to Ireland. Um, and, and people being really interested in this musical performance and finding it compelling in a very strange way. Um, but this was, and, and for some, Black musicians as well of playing the kind of minstrel repertoire or playing in that setup was an opportunity for them to play music professionally. And so they were willing to do that, even though it had this kind of nasty beginning that a lot of us don't like to think about or talk about today. So there are some efforts at a revival of the banjo with black musicians. Absolutely. I think that once, you know, kind of in the late 1900s, the history of the banjo was becoming more and more well known. And what you had was at first a lot of people kind of using the beginnings of the internet to communicate with each other about this history and wanting to to learn more about it. You also had white scholars who were interested in, in this Black African-American history. Um, and so they got together in a kind of famed event that's called the Black Banjo Gathering. And that was where the group, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, met and formed. And I think, you know, ever since then, and the notoriety that the Carolina Chocolate Drops got, in addition to kind of ongoing research and scholarship, has really made a super fertile ground uh, for some of the awesome younger musicians who are coming up. Um, Jake Blunt is uh, a friend and from here in Maryland uh, where I live and, you know, just doing really interesting things of looking at the history of the banjo and how that can be incorporated into the contemporary music that they're playing. My guest, Christina Gaddy, writer and historian, and her book dedicated, incidentally, to Mr. Baptiste we've mentioned, The book is Well of Souls, Uncovering the Banjo's Hidden History, published by W.W. Norton. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.